Great, thanks for being here, like wrapping up all of pain week, so I know what it's like being stuck at the last lecture. I appreciate your efforts for joining here today. So um, before we get into this, just a little background, um, let's get to know the audience. So who here, physicians in the audience? How many are physicians do we have? And then pharmacists, any pharmacists here? And then any chiropractors? One chiropractor, massage therapist. Do we have massage therapists? Other, other ancillary services, nurse practitioners it's in the nursing field, social workers? The angels of medicine are the social workers. Um, so, okay, what I'm going to be talking about are all the different manual therapies. I won't talk about all the different manual therapies, about what, what sort of manual therapies that are out there for pain management and just a big overview of what it is. And, and we'll focus specifically on back pain as a case example, but we can do any sort of diagnosis and what, what are things that we're doing. So really no financial disclosures. There's nothing financial. I'm, at, I'm the clinical director of the UC San Diego Center for Integrative Medicine and director of clinical training at our osteopathic center in San Diego. You can look through the learning objectives and there's some self-assessment questions that we have here. And apologies for these slides. There, some some of the colors. I mean, the, the pictures might turn out fine, but since they had to put some watermarks on all of the slides here for Pain Week, some of the images, the colors might not turn out too well. It doesn't present well. So apologies for your visual cortex ahead of time. So I'm going to talk about what I've done in medicine and a little bit of back, background of my past and how we build these bridges in medicine and why you're here in this track of integrative medicine and what that is specifically. I started out my path in medicine as a massage therapist when I was in college as an easy way to pay for college, but also it like jump-started me into the integrative and holistic realm. When it came time to go to medical school, I thought, oh, I'm going to be an MD and it does massage or something like that. And someone said I should check out what an osteopathic school was. I had no idea what that was and checked out what a DO was. And I'm like, wow, this is right up my alley. Applied, got into osteopathic school and spent all that time and extra money in medical school learning from naturopaths, chiropractors, other osteopaths, acupuncturist, homeopath, uh, building this kind of integrative repertoire or smorgasbord, I like to call it, to offer patients with diagnosis. I did my family practice training at UC San Diego. I was the first osteopath that was accepted in the family medicine program there. Since then, we've had at least two or three DOs every year for the past 15 years, and myself and four other faculty members started the Integrative Medicine Center, where we now have 45 providers on staff at every family medicine clinic, as well as internal medicine, some OB, some pediatric clinics. We have acupuncturists, nutritionists, psychologists. We have a social worker. We have osteopaths, board-certified integrative family physicians. And all those services are within those clinics. So you can come to your primary care doctor and get an acupuncture service. And now we're launching an inpatient program for that. So I like to think of this analogy of like building bridges about all these other options that are out there other than just the mainstream model of medicine. And so hopefully what you can take away from some of the stuff that you've learned here, take back to your institutions and to your communities and building bridges. And specifically what we're talking about is for patients dealing with chronic pain and we know that there's like a big, it, this is a big, big issue, and it's becoming worse, more, more worse as time goes on. 
So what exactly is manual medicine? What, are, what is the, the basis definition of that? It's just the use of your hands-on techniques to diagnose and treat dysfunction in the body. You know, and how does this work? Well, there's a somatic experience to all disease processes. So when people think of, you know, manual medicine techniques and manual therapies, they think, you know, okay, we're just treating the musculoskeletal system. But if you think, really think about it, patients with congestive heart failure, there's a somatic experience to that. If you have hypothyroidism, if you have diabetes, there's a somatic experience to that. And so from a manual therapy standpoint, what you're trying to do is treat the structure of the body, the physical structure, because, and ease the disease burden on that body. So when I teach my students, I tell them, yeah, you can diagnose a pneumonia, you can look at hypothyroidism, look at the labs, but can, do you know what a pneumonia feels like? Can you diagnose a pneumonia even without a stethoscope? Can you use your hands and feel where the consolidation is on the left lower lobe? Can you feel what hypothyroidism feels like? Patients' skin texture, when their A1C goes up, their skin texture changes. So all of these are different things that you can bring into your practice and you can teach. One of the things I was talking about earlier with another physician is that we're, we're becoming a little too reliant on technology nowadays. I mean, I love technology, don't get me wrong, but most of the time when you go see the doctor now, they're like behind typing on the EHR, right? That bar that's acting as a barrier for the doctor-patient relationship. And we need to use technology as a tool to help us with that. But we've gone away from the physical exam. We've gone away from touching patients and putting our hands on people. So how does this work? So there's palpation and perception. So when you're putting your hands on a patient, you know, you're, it's the left brain, right brain type thing. So I always talk to students. I'm like, put down the EHR, put down all of these devices, get your hands and put them on the patient. Tell me what that patient feels like to you. What would you write in the chart? What's the loss of range of motion? What is, is there heat? You know, what is the objective finding? But then also, what are you perceiving? What's the perception that's coming to you when you're putting your hands on someone? And we'll get to a demo here towards the end, and hopefully we'll, we'll, be, we'll have enough time. And there's not too many people, so I think it'll be doable to, to do something like that. So we got the left brain, the right brain, but it's, what it's doing, this power of touch, putting your hands on somebody, it's enhancing that doctor-patient relationship, the provider and the patient. It's, that's where that healing space is occurring. So another way that manual medicine works is anatomy. Anatomy is the cornerstone, and we're looking at anatomical structures. And when I talk to students, I'm like, we don't really care about dead people anatomy, you know, everything that we learned in medical schools on a cadaver. What we care about is functional living anatomy. We want to study anatomy in daily life and how those diseases affect that particular person's anatomy. And also with the idea that life is motion. So we have these physical structures, these bodies that we live in, these anatomical structures that are very different from person to person, but they're built to move. And so part of these manual therapies, what we do in essence, like you get a massage, you go to physical therapy, it's all about increasing range of motion. So you just kind of think of our bodies are meant for motion on all systems require motion for that. There are a lot of different forms of manual medicine out there. And, and this varies by culture. It also varies by community. It varies by different places in the world of where things are going to focus. It varies on the communities that are dictated by insurance companies. Sometimes insurance companies reimburse a lot of physical therapy. Other times it's just massage. Like, it just depends on where you're at. So what I tell 
people when I'm giving talks like this is find out where your community you live in, what are the insurance companies reimbursing for. So when you make a referral, you can refer out to the proper places. And we'll focus on some of the big ones first. So chiropractic, you know, is founded by Daniel David Palmer, you know, they're treating traditionally treating subluxations of the vertebrae. In our community in Southern California, I know Kaiser is a big uh, institution there. There's a lot of other HMOs. Chiropractic is a covered care. So this is, some of these institutions are bringing their chiropractors on staff. Other insurance companies, as I know, some on the East Coast, chiropractic is, is covered. So again, get to know where you're doing and where you're gonna be because this could be a great benefit for some patients to, to look at. Physical therapy, this is pretty much unanimous across the board that I believe most insurances are reimbursing physical therapy. There might be a limit on how much physical therapy they get, so you kind of have to be careful for that. Like that you only get 20 physical therapy appointments in one given time frame for a year. So if you have a car accident for neck pain and then you have one for knee pain, you might be out of the physical therapy. So again, it's, it's helpful for the patients to understand this. I use physical therapists a lot because what they do is they have the time to spend with the patients to do education. So it's one-on-one -on -one education, and they see the physical therapist two to three times a week sometimes, and it holds the patients accountable. They're like, you need to do these exercises, and patients need to do their exercises to get better, and they feel accountable because they have someone to go to. Healing touch, I put this in there because there's a lot of nurses that do healing touch. Is anyone certified to do healing touch here? No? This is a free program that uh, is offered by Scripps Hospital in San Diego, and a lot of nurses do this. They don't need a physician order, and they're doing, some of these nurses are now doing it before surgery, after surgery, and they're having some really good outcomes with this. There's a lot more uh, evidence that's going to be coming up soon. And massage, this is pretty much as old as time. There's many different practitioners, many different branches. You can go to the spa here. I, every time I go to a conference, I go check out the spa to see what's on their menu. And it gets, sometimes there's some really wild things. You take a bath and milk and they put stones on you. But really what it's doing is kicking in that relaxation response. And that can be very beneficial for patients dealing with chronic pain, PTSD, because they don't reach to that parasympathetic level of stasis within their nervous system. So again, I encourage you to find out who are the good massage therapists in your community. Because not only will the patients benefit by you knowing them, you might benefit. So the way that I found out you know, who the massage therapists were, I just went, looked them up online, looked in the local community and said, listen, I'm gonna start sending a bunch of patients to you. I think you should give me a free massage so I know what you're dealing with. And then next thing you know, like two, three years of getting free massages. And after a while, they're like, we can't give you free massages anymore. Dr. Curisu, stop. But it is a way to establish that rapport and relationship. And then osteopathic medicine. And so I'll talk a little bit and pause here about what I do and what it is. And so this was founded by A.T. Still, who was actually an orthopedic surgeon, and came up with three different or three fundamental philosophy of what osteopathic medicine is. So it's the body as a unit, structure and function are interrelated, and the body is self-healing. So when people ask me, like, what's the difference between a DO and an MD, it's really those three areas, those three pillars of the philosophy is what's different. We do get about 1,000 extra hours of hands-on diagnosis and treatment and training that we do use in clinical practice, but this holistic way of approach to the patient is the fundamental difference. 
a picture of Andrew Taylor Still. And he was interesting because he wanted to create this new paradigm of medicine because at the time, drugs and surgery were the only things that were treating a lot of the patients back in the Civil War. And you can imagine what kind of drugs and what kind of surgeries they were doing. And so he was trying to set on a path. And I think one of the first people to get into like the modern record books of what this new era of integrative and holistic medicine really is. Osteopathy is growing. When I started, I think one in 10 physicians out there were a DO versus an MD. They've opened so many medical schools in the past 10 years that in 2020, one in four physicians graduating will be a DO versus an MD. So let's focus on the particular case, because this is really common. This is the bread and butter of any manual therapist. Just know that it's not just the musculoskeletal system that we treat. So as an osteopath and the family medicine physician, I get a lot of referrals from a lot of different practitioners in our community, not just for musculoskeletal pain. So what I'm saying is there's chronic migraine. There's manipulation techniques that you do for chronic migraine. There's techniques that you could do for hypertension to help lower blood pressure. There's manipulation techniques for the GI system, so releasing release of adhesions, any chronic pelvic pain, and the list can go on and on. But I'll focus on back pain because it's the easiest place to kind of understand where we can make a difference for this. And it's a really common one. It's one of the most common musculoskeletal complaints, primary care, I think. Headache is the first most common reason for pain that people seek out care, and then low back pain is the second. Big prevalence in the lumbar area, you know, and most of it can be just from a strain or sprain. Then there's, you know, degenerative processes, stenosis, disc herniations make up a smaller percentage of those. Causes more disability than any other diagnosis. The cost of care is lower for those who have physical and emotional functioning. Our cost of care is higher, actually, with our physical emotional dysfunction. And the natural clinical course, we got the acute going to chronic low back pain. Most of it resolved within six weeks. And the reason I'm focusing on here, because this is where you can make an intervention early, get the patients educated, get the structure functioning a little bit better before you start down the path of interventions that might not be necessary. And you have to go through your differential, of course. You know, most of it's mechanical, but there can be visceral or some neoplastic. It might be a rheumatological issue that's going on. So you work the patient up, and then we can start the referral process and figure out what's going on. Look for the red flags for low back pain. These are always important. Always have good rapport with who the neurosurgeons are if you're dealing with chronic low back pain, because can, these can pop up. And then we, what you want to do is, how do you diagnose the low back pain? Most of the time, the patients are like, it hurts here. And they're like, all right, you got low back pain. What are we going to do about this? But what I tell the students again is like, put everything down, get your hands, feel what that low back pain feels like. Because if you can write the referral to physical therapy or you can write a referral to massage therapy with a little more specifics, it helps that physical therapist, it helps the massage therapist, it helps whomever write a treatment plan that's more educated for the patient. And we'll go over this, and hopefully with enough time, we can have a little bit of a demonstration where everyone can get their hands on each other here. So what you want to look for is lower extremity neuro exam, look at the pulses, leg length, gait analysis. So that's something that I don't think we do too much in medicine. 
I go to the waiting room and walk all my patients back to the exam room because I want to see how they're walking. You know, I just, patients like it because I'm getting them from the waiting room, but secretly I'm studying them to see their compensation of what they're doing. And then what, is it, the, what are they doing in normal life? So the posture. So looking at a patient of what they do during the day. I always ask patients, I'm like, what do you do during the day? And, you know, they give various answers, you know, like, I'm an attorney or a physician, I do this, this. I'm like, no, but what do you really do? And they're like, well, I just sit. And I think that's what most of us end up doing in most of our daily lives, causing a lot of problems. And so we'll talk about that since you guys are all sitting right now. So no one really sits like this, right? But this is how you're supposed to sit. But there's still a problem here, right? Even though you have a straight spine, and your legs are at equal length. You can look at the proper ergonomics. There's a great ergonomics team we have it in the University of California, and they do great ergonomic assessments. But still the problem is that it's a sitting posture. So what happens over time when we're sitting too long? Right? Our posture is not perfect. And the biggest problem is if you look at the physical structure, we're talking about anatomy and physical structure, this area, the sacrum, the pelvis, is not meant to hold the entire weight of the body. Like we've, we've evolved from a human frame to be all along the long bones of the axis. And most of the people who have low back pain, if you watch them during functional assessments and looking at their functional anatomy, you know, what, what are we evolving into? Number one, this is there's a great nutrition lecture earlier today talking about obesity and how, how obesity is very related to pain. But also, like, what are we doing most of this time with now? I mean, this is don't get me wrong, I do love technology, but technology, we need to start using it in different ways. Like, how can we use technology to get us back to this, these functional people? And the way to study, like, again, functional anatomy is you study indigenous cultures, and what do they do? Like, they're sitting, and they're not sitting on chairs. Most of the time, they're sitting on the ground in a good posture, or they're squatting. You know, this is the natural way that humans have developed. And most of us are, end up sitting the whole time. So you can see how your anatomy is going to change over time. And whether it's low back pain, whether you're doing with any cardiac issues, you can see how if you start changing the anatomy, it's going to make more of a disease burden on that physical structure. And then it gets worse, because we're doing it from, my, my son just started kindergarten, and this is like a typical classroom, right? I mean, who grew up with a classroom like this? Everyone has classrooms like this. And we are expecting these children to sit like this, and they've taken away PE from a lot of schools, right? And we're expecting our children, who's five, and this kid has more energy than you can imagine, to sit like this for eight hours a day. Now, I don't know about you, like most kids can't do that. And then if they want to get up and start moving around functionally like they're supposed to, then the teacher's like, well, that kid's not acting right, you know? So it causes problems, you know? And this is what happens to me in med school lectures after eight hours a day. This is not, not, a, not a useful thing. So for back pain, we've got to start thinking outside the box, thinking about things, using ergonomics a little bit better, being outdoors more, that sort of thing. Standing desks are becoming a lot more popular. I've spoken at several conferences, especially one that was like uh, focused on functional anatomy, actually, and they didn't have any chairs 
for the audience. The audience was all standing the whole time. It was a really interesting conference to be at. So hands-on tests. So we're still talking about low back pain. The patients in, in our exam room, what are some of those hands-on tests that we can do? So we're going to do a couple of these. One is the standing flexion test, and I'll try to teach that to you guys to help you differentiate and have a take-home point from this today. And then going to treatment. So standard therapy of treatment is giving them NSAIDs, maybe sending them to physical therapy. One of the things that we've seen over the past several years is there's just a huge percent increase in epidural steroid injections. There's also increase, and we know this for the opioids, increase of numbers of MRIs ordered. And that, that might be okay, because MRIs are a great image. You don't get any radiation, and it gives you a really good view of what might be going on, whether it's a nerve problem. But we're seeing a huge increase of spinal fusion as well, and these might not be necessary if we can catch them early enough. And even from the National Health Service's guidelines for low back pain, you can see they did, you know, this is, I think, a six- or seven-year study they put together. They have an exercise program, manual therapy, some mind-body interventions. Surgery would need it, but if you notice, you know, opioids and epidural steroid injections aren't on there. And so maybe we're treating all of this a little bit differently. And again, I'm using low back pain as one particular example, but you can throw in all these other examples that are out there from chronic migraine, chronic pelvic pain. You know, can we start correcting some of these dysfunctions early before they cause chronic dysfunction? So when we look at treatment, we look at what are we going to do externally? What are the physical components that we can do? What do we do internally? So patients might be dealing with some somatoemotional issues. So referring to the correct psychologist that might be having some issues for the patient and then giving them support. And then the techniques from a manual therapy standpoint. So I'm, a, I'm an osteopath, but all the different other people that do manual techniques, you can group them into like two big buckets of these direct techniques. So if anyone had a massage and they like deep tissue and it's really direct, that's a direct technique. Or you can have these indirect techniques, which are much more soft. Cranial sacral is part of that, strain, counter strain. These are all types of indirect techniques. And then patients always ask me, you know, what, what else can I do, not only for my low back pain, but what else can I do for my body? What, what, you know, they, they went and saw the physical therapist, they got a massage, they're feeling better. What can they do for themselves before they get to the next appointment? Well, one, you've got to look at, you know, the body's a unit. So you look at the nutritional status. What are you feeding to this body? What are you feeding to this functional anatomy structure that you're trying to build? And the other is movement. So nutrition and movement are two mainstays, main areas that I focus on for keeping patients healthy. Nutrition, like just biggest rule of thumb, I tell patients, start on the anti-inflammatory diet. You know, you can just Google that and there's anti-inflammatory. And there's all types of other different diets, but if you're eating something that's causing inflammation for you, then you can stop that, then that can stop that pain process. And what I tell patients is, you know, straight lines do not exist in nature. So just look, think of circles, like curvilinear type circles. If anything's on an aisle or it comes in a box, it's probably not that great for you. So shop in the periphery of a grocery store and not down the central area. And then movement. And people always ask, like, well, what kind of exercise should I do? What is this? And I'm like, I don't really care. Just start moving. Like, 
go walk and fly a kite, walk your dog, like do something to get your body moving because we're not moving enough. And I think one way that technology can help us is these wearable devices that are giving us reminders. They're like, you're sitting too much. You're not breathing enough. You're, you know, your stress level is getting too high. And it could help nudge us in that right direction. So when and where to refer. These are just the, the ones that we talked about earlier. These are the ones that you can look in your community. Just look who's, look who's around in your community. Look who your patients might need to go see. And then go see what the physical therapist does. I mean, it was surprising to me when I started to do this that there was just a vast difference of all different types of physical therapists. In, the, in our community in San Diego, there's a physical therapist just for women for chronic pelvic pain. Then there's a physical therapist for men for chronic pelvic pain. There's one that does just physical therapy for TMJ. There's another one that only does PT for migraines. So sometimes it's really helpful to know where to refer. And again, it differs by community and culture. So just see who's around in your communities. The same if there's any osteopaths around, chiropractors. Find out who the massage people are. And just uh, showing a little bit of evidence, there is actually a lot of evidence that manual therapies can be very effective for low back pain. And if you just look at, there should be the references in here too, but you can look at all the different types of evidence that's coming that we can use manual therapy for, for many other things outside the musculoskeletal system. So again, we're doing a study in our clinic right now at UCSD for manual therapies for Parkinson's disease because we can get them walking better and it decreases their tremor. You can say the same thing for migraine. There's a migraine study that's going on of using manual therapies and manipulation techniques for migraine and another one we're doing for ear infections. So that anything you can think of, there's manipulation techniques that, that can be done on the body to help those patients with their disease process. These are just some of the references here. So I think um, we can get to a little hands-on demonstration here, see how much time we have left. So I can leave you guys, it's hard to talk about manual therapy thing without you guys getting your hands on each other. So. Yeah, we got enough time for the demo here. So why don't we do this since it's a small audience that you guys are all going to get to know and touch each other. So pair up, find someone that you're going to be working with. And if I can have someone come up here, I can demo and you guys can come follow along. Actually, let me, let me stop there. Are there any questions that I can answer first before we get to demo? Yeah. For MS, yes. Yeah, and for so the question was, are there any manipulation techniques for spasticity? So yes, there, there is, and it depends on what muscle group that you're going to be targeting for spasticity. But there are different types of techniques that can be used specifically for spasticity. MS is a little different because it kind of it goes into the bucket of this, this entire autoimmune picture that, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but we're seeing so many new autoimmune cases com coming up and such. So... Looking at the functional piece, because again, the spasticity from one individual is going to be much different than the other. So it, this is a very personalized approach. So you have to find out what area, what groups are spastic, and then you can do manipulation techniques to help those muscle fibers not be in as much spasticity. Any other questions? All right, so pair up. Everyone stand up first, so we get moving, get our bodies moving. And if someone wants to come up here, I can demo. 
Uh, let me see. If I if I am right here, can I, can everyone see what I'm doing? Or do you need me up on the stage? Up on the stage? How are you? Hi. Good. Laura? My name is Laura. Laura, nice to meet you. Uh, thanks for being a guinea pig. So stand right here, <laughs> facing that way, facing, facing that way. So what we're going to do is we're going to get to know our patient, right? So patient came in, we're going to talk about low back pain, but we're going to get to know our patient. And one of the things that I tell students when you're learning these techniques is you always want to make sure that you're grounded in yourself before you put your hands on another human, right? So you could be working on the EHR and you're like, I really hate this EHR and you get in this bad mood. Someone calls, your mother-in-law's yelling at you. And you come over and you're like, hey, how am my patient doing, right? So it makes a difference if you're grounded in your own self and how you're going to be before you put your hands on someone. So everyone ground yourself, whatever way you do, by breathing or closing your eyes or whatever. And then we're going to meet our patient. And we're pretending our patient has low back pain. I'm not sure if Laura does or not, but kind of a common thing. And what you're going to do is put your hands on top of their shoulders. So remember, we're talking about functional anatomy, right? So we have two large areas that the patients have for low back pain. So one is coming from the pelvis. The other is the lumbar spine. But one way is to, to see how, if there's any compensation patterns. Put your, just putting your hands on their shoulders, and you can see if one, one shoulder is going to be higher than the other, right? So for some, you might see it discrepancy there. So that could become something coming from the spine if there's a difference from one shoulder being higher. Now put your hands down on top of their pelvis. See if you can find where their pelvis is, right on top of the crest of the ilia. And there might be a discrepancy as well. Right? So you might so in your mind you're kind of sketching out what this anatomical figure is. So Someone might have shoulder discrepancy with the right shoulder being higher, and then their left pelvis is higher. So then you can start to build like this three-dimensional model in your mind of what's going on with this person's anatomy. Now have that patient sit. Go ahead and sit right here. <laughs> Put your hands on their shoulders. See if that changed. Right. So if the pressure and the weight is now going into the pelvis, does that make a difference in their shoulders? Come down and feel on the pelvis to see if there's a discrepancy there. Right? And so, again, using your hands as that diagnostic tool. These are like extra tools in your doctor kit that we're, not, we're just using to do this and write prescriptions. Put them on the patient, see what they do. Go ahead and stand up. But keep your hands on the patient and see how, their, see how their anatomy changes when they go from sitting to standing. Go ahead and sit back down. And then stand back up. Nope. But 
have them sit and stand with your hands on them to see if you or see if you can feel. So you need to feel how things are changing in this body. Okay? And then another thing to do, like I said, gait analysis. I don't want you walking off the stage, so just go a little bit. Have your patient walk. You can turn around and come back. And just study how they walk. They're going to be really self-conscious walking because now they're going to be aware of their, them walking. right? But if someone's suffering from low back pain, maybe their, maybe their back pain is coming from their ankle. Maybe it's coming from their knee. These are all just exercises for you to get to know your patients a little better. I don't expect you to like, learn techniques to do all this sort of stuff, but if there's a take-home point is put everything down, put your hands on the patient, and then you might have a better idea. You can say to the physical therapist if you make a referral saying, you know what, when the patient sat down, I felt more tension on the right side. But that'll click in the physical therapist, that'll click in the chiropractor's mind, that'll click in the osteopath. They'll say, I know exactly what's going on, and you can hone in on the diagnosis better. And then I'll teach you one test that's really easy to do in the clinic. See if you guys can do it, and I can go around to help show, show you what it is. But a lot of times, low back pain might not be coming from the lumbar spine. A good portion of the time, it's coming from a dysfunction in the sacroiliac joint. So SI joint dysfunction and lumbar dysfunction can still cause pain in that same area, but two very different areas, right? And treated two very different ways, because if you're going to have a steroid injection, I've had patients have spinal fusions done, tons of injections, all of sorts, but they're focused on the wrong area. The SI joint was the dysfunctional part. So figuring out, is it SI joint pain or is it lumbar pain? That's a very early branch of that diagnostic odyssey for that patient. It could make a huge difference. One of the tests that we do is called a standing flexion test, and you can read it up here. But what you do is you put your hands on the ilia, and you put your thumbs right into the SI joint of the individual, have them flex forward, and if you feel a discrepancy, some people might have a right side going higher, some might have a left side going higher. If that happens, there's a dysfunction in the SI joint. If the right side goes higher, it's a right SI joint dysfunction. If it stays even, that's fine. The SI joints are working fine. Then the pain might be coming from the lumbar spine. Does that make sense? So see if you could do this. Put your hands on their ilia, on the top of the iliac crest. And your thumbs, when you do that, your thumbs should be right around the SI joint. You might be able to feel the posterior superior iliac spines, if you guys remember anatomy. Not really. The PSIS, posterior superior iliac spines. So your, if your hands are on the top of their ilia, your thumbs are going to be right in the SI joint on that side. And just have them flex forward. And I'll come around and help people if they're... So, Laura, go ahead and flex down here. A little stiff, huh? and then come back up. So he has a right-sided, slightly right-sided SI joint dysfunction there. Thanks for volunteering up here. Don't forget your... Oh, thank you. Yeah. And then go ahead and switch up. 
if you haven't already, like switch from one, one side to the next. So put your hands on their shoulders, put your hands on their hips. See if there's a, a difference in discrepancy between the two. And again, this is just very basic. You guys are at manual therapy, like day one here. Just have them flex forward, have them sit or stand. See if you can feel how the anatomy changes. One of the things that you might want to look at if your patient has low back pain is what kind of shoes are they wearing, right? So I always do an exam watching them walk with shoes and without shoes. And if you actually look at a patient's shoe, you can tell where side they're wearing down on. And you can see how that's going to affect where they are in their pelvis. So the question is, what is the difference between Alexander technique and Feldenkrais method? Alexander technique was uh, formulated, I believe, and someone correct me if I'm wrong if they know, I believe Alexander technique started in the theater. So he started as as a way of doing manual techniques for people that were on stage because they were, he was noticing that their people were becoming much more flexed. And so he developed this training technique so they were able to like stand it. If you look at people who have great posture, it's people that do theater because they have to stand on stage, project their voice. And so he developed a series of postural type techniques. Feldenkrais, Moshe Feldenkrais came from Israel and it came from the theory and philosophy. Of, it's more on martial arts, it's kind of more judo based. And so it has a lot to do with much more movement rather than postural alignment. Both of those can be in the bucket of more of the indirect type techniques versus direct, like the direct pressure, but two different philosophies for correcting dysfunction. Any other questions? All right, I'm gonna teach you guys one more technique and you guys are still stay with the same partner. So one other uh, volunteer come up here quick. So everyone, Everyone partner up again, but this time just have your patient sit. So, and we'll switch up so everyone gets to do this. So provider in the back, patient is sitting down in front of you. And again, we're not gonna focus on low back pain. So the whole idea is like getting your hands on patients, getting, getting back to that physical exam laying the hands on someone, increasing that provider-patient relationship, because that's where the healing occurs. So we're dealing with chronic pain, right? The whole week has been about pain week. The whole issue with these patients, these chronic pain patients, they're very difficult patients to deal with, which is why we have social workers coming to these conferences, because you can't do it on your own. So we have a patient who's suffering, right? And a lot of times, as providers, you can recognize that suffering and standoffish. So just an indirect technique I'll, I'll teach you. You can do it on anyone, do it on your loved ones or whatever. So again, making sure that you're grounded in yourself, putting your hands on, you're the provider, putting your hands on the patient in front of you, and just seeing what comes into your hands, what comes into your mind, what do you feel? 
some people might have more tension on left side versus right side. You might feel the clavicle. Might, some people might have a broken clavicle. Put your fingertips on their trapezius muscle and then have them take a few really deep breaths and just leave your hands there gently. But have the patients breathe in and out three big deep breaths. And as you do that, you might feel the trapezius muscle rise a little bit. The apex of the lung, the fascia from that lung is pushing up on that, that, those muscles there. And just gently, and keep breathing, <laughs> gently follow that rise and fall with your hands. See if you can feel that expansion and gently, as they breathe out, you're kind of pushing down slightly. When they breathe up, you're kind of pulling up, upward slightly, as if, you're, as if there's a water balloon that's right, getting, expanding and contracting. So really what you're doing here is you're feeling what the relaxation response can happen in patients. Because how often, it doesn't take too long to take four to five deep breaths in a session with a patient, right? And patients might come in, their blood pressure is high, their, their pulse is up, but if you can just get them to sit and you're just doing this gentle, it's an indirect technique, and what you're doing is you're following the fascia, the rise and fall of things, and you can, you know, sometimes I disguise it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to take your pulse here, why don't you just breathe deeply? But again, I think it's instilling what's missing, go ahead and switch up, here, switch up again. What you're instilling is what's missing in medicine, like I said, this provider-patient contact, patients are craving this sort of thing. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll just do simple, gentle techniques because I have no idea how to help this patient because they're suffering so bad. And I'm like, oh, why don't you just sit here and breathe and I'll just, we'll just talk. And then they're like, wow, what technique did you do? I feel so much better. I'm like, I don't know. I think I, you just were able to calm down for the first time in 10 years. So it's you becoming aware of what your hands can do, which is a lot more than just type on a computer text someone, write prescriptions. You can establish a connection with somebody that can help them deal with all of their suffering. So if there's anything you've learned is start touching your patients more, number one. I know some of you are like, there's a, I don't want to touch patients. Um... But also, get, get to know the people in your community that do these sort of things for a living. Get to know all the massage therapists. Get to know the physical therapists. Know who they are. Know what the pathways to go to. Because then someone might come in with a migraine. You're like, oh, I met a massage person that would be perfect for you. Or I know the physical therapy that specializes in sports injuries from knees. And it establishes that personal connection. And then your exam can help guideline can help guide those therapists to a better diagnostic and better treatment plan for the patients. So happy to answer any more questions, but thank you for your time. Hope you enjoyed getting your hands